the truth is what I call the imperfect planet premise. Like nature is dynamic. So it's changing all the time in all kinds of ways. It's dangerous and it's deficient. It doesn't give us what we need at all. But if you believe in this perfect planet premise, what you fear above all is human impact. Because you think anything we do to disrupt the delicate balance of the perfect planet, that's going to go haywire. And we are all, particularly my age uh, on down, we're all indoctrinated with this idea that oh, nature exists in a delicate balance. We think of it as this perfect godlike thing. And if we disrupt it, it's going to get ruined. And so that's, that is a, that's a dogma. We each have our own gift to give, and yours is unique. What reality you want to create? your choice always no one can take that from you what's up guys i have a real fucking treat for you today alex epstein i love alex epstein i discovered him a couple years ago uh he wrote a book called the moral case of fossil fuel and he's making the argument that the moral thing to do is to invest in fossil fuels and just to use fossil fuels we think that fossil fuels is like the big evil and uh, turns out maybe not, maybe not exactly so much, right? And you know me, I'm here to challenge all misrepresentations of truth in the world. So if a big misrepresentation is that moral, uh, sorry, that fossil fuel is the bad guy in the, in the room, and that's a misconception, then I wanna challenge that. And Alex Epstein does a brilliant job of that. Right now in California, we have these blackouts and Gavin Newsom, the, 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 what is it? The governor of California actually came out and say, yeah, this like, oh, like renewable solar wind thing is not working out so well for us, right? When the, when the sun ain't shining and the wind ain't blowing and we ain't got like massive ass batteries, uh, turns out we run out of power. Who would have, who would have thunk? Who could have predicted that, right? Like, it fascinates me how terrible people are at just thinking things through. They think emotionally. And our emotions are super important. Super important. Like, really, really important. For the right things, we need to use our emotions for the right things. But for certain things, we need to use our left brain, our logic and reason. And not everybody is do good at doing that. So, today's conversation with Alex Epstein. Let's get into it before this airplane is becomes so loud that you can't hear what the hell I'm saying. Take care, guys. See you. All right, guys. Welcome here to Alex Epstein. Alex has written a book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, as you can see behind him. And I, I came across you, Alex. Um, we were just talking about that. You were saying like four years ago when you were on the Rubin Report. I think I may have discovered it a bit later, to be honest, because I don't think I got into Dave Rubin until 17. But you laid out the case, the moral case for fossil fuels. And it, I remember hearing it and just went against everything that I believed in, right? I was like, no, for moral, uh, fossil fuel is bad and it's hurting the planet and it's hurting everyone. And you were like, no, it's actually, it's actually very moral. Like that was weird to me. And I you know, bought the book, read it, and I've given it to many people now. And yeah, what, what's the deal, man? What is it? Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'll, I'll be curious what, what you found uh, persuasive, but as you indicated, I mean, we're definitely all taught that the continuing use of fossil fuels is immoral. That is, right. if we continue using fossil fuels now and in the next decade, in the next decade, the world is going to become a much worse place to live. Right. That's the, the dominant idea. It's often called an addiction. So the idea is it may feel right. convenient now, but in the long run, 
uh, it's destructive. And we hear that it's already making the world worse today. And just right. imagine what it's going to do uh, in the future. And, you know, my view is exactly the opposite. I think that if we continue using fossil fuels, and in fact, if we expand the use of fossil fuels around the world, the world will be a much, much better place to live 10, 20, uh, 30 years from now. And if we seek to eliminate the use of fossil fuels, which is what many people advocate today. So if we make that the goal over the next several decades, we will make our lives much worse in the wealthier parts of the world. And we will certainly deprive the poorest parts of the world any opportunity to raise their standard of living. And that, that may seem very implausible to people, but I would just, just share one data point that I think is, should be intriguing to us. So I, I was born in the year 1980, when some, actually about to be 40 uh, in, in exactly a month on August 1st. Right. And, Congratulations. Uh, but that, that's not the point of the, the anecdote. <laughs> no. um, in 1980, think about this, 42% of the people in the world lived in what we call extreme poverty. So that means they made less than $2 a day. Like, think about that. What, what does it mean to make less than $2 a day? I mean, if you read firsthand accounts of people who make $2 a day, it's something like if they have any kind of home, they live in like a 10 by 10 room with six other people, no running water, you know, distended stomachs because they can't get food perpetual, like no medical care. I mean, this is, you know, the condition, think of that, it's over four out of 10 people in the world lived mm -hmm. in this condition. Now, they've taken surveys of people, like Oxford University had a survey, it wasn't over the last 40 years, over the last 30 years. And they say, what's happened to the rate of extreme poverty in the world? Is it getting, because that's a good indication of how good a place the world is to live, how many people are in extreme poverty. It, has it gotten worse? Has it stayed the same? Or has it gotten better? So I just asked the audience just to think about like, what would be your view? Uh, of this, or maybe you think this is a setup so you can kind of guess what the answer is, but, but it, absent this, and so they a asked a group of college educated Europeans, so highly educated people, and approximately 55% said extreme poverty is growing, and 33% or so said it's staying the same, and 12% said it's getting better. And so what's the truth? The truth is from 1980 to the present, so in the last 40 years, extreme poverty has gone from more than four in 10 people in extreme poverty to less than one in 10. So just think about that. Wow. So that's yeah. billions 40% to 10%. Yeah. So like billions of people have gotten out of that completely like dire situation that we would, if we ever fell into it, we would consider a complete catastrophe, but right. we don't always and think is that, that. Is that due to fossil fuel? Well, I would say yes. But I think the first thing to recognize when we're talking about the world becoming better, the world becoming worse, is to recognize that the world is the best place it's ever been today, mm -hmm. and it's rapidly improving. And so much mm -hmm. of the time when people talk about fossil fuels, they have a sense that fossil fuels are central to our way of life, but they have this narrative, the world is bad, and it's getting worse. Mm -hmm. And now you can, if you acknowledge that the world is amazing and getting better. You can still say, I'm afraid of problems with fossil fuels, but most of the people who say that fossil fuels are bad, they, they act like the world today is bad and getting worse. And then they say it's gonna get worse, even yeah. worse. But if you can't predict the present, how can I trust you to predict the future? So I think we need right. to first inventory when we think about the planet, the world, the state of things, whatever's going wrong, and there are things going wrong, 
it is by far the best place it's ever been uh, to live. And just to give you the indication, I think that is totally reliant on fossil fuels. And there are kind of two steps to that. One is that the reason we can, we're not, so many people can be out of extreme poverty is extreme productivity. The only way to get mm -hmm. out of extreme poverty is extreme productivity. And the thing is, nature doesn't give us the things we need to be wealthy and prosperous, right? We, extreme poverty is the natural state. So we need to figure out a way to efficiently produce things like food, clothing, shelter, et cetera. And the way we get extreme productivity is through machines. We get machines to do most of our physical work for us. Now, what is energy? Energy is machine calories. So the more efficiently we can produce energy, the lower cost we can produce energy, the more people can use machines to improve our lives. So that's step one is that prosperity requires machine power. And then right. fossil fuels are 80% of our, what I would call our machine calories. So the things that fuel the machines. And they're also still the fastest growing source of energy in the world. And so we should really yeah. ask, because we often also fastest growing in out. terms of percentage. Is the percentage going up or down? Well, no, no, the percentage, the percentage has actually been flat for a while. It's been around 80 okay. to 85, depending on, but in terms of absolute numbers, right. so really small things can, I mean, you're in tech, you know, they can have big growth rates. Uh, mm -hmm. But those can be illusory too. Like you can have a company, you know, that, oh, we grew 50% right, right. yeah. a year and we're going to outpace Warren Buffett if this continues uh, indefinitely, right? But it's hard to do that. So it's just in terms of who can produce low cost energy for billions of people, really the fossil fuel industry right now is the only one that's demonstrably capable of doing it. Now we can talk about the future, but I would just say that the fact is that over the last 40 years and really over the last, let's say 170 years, people have used fossil fuels to take themselves from extreme poverty to extreme productivity and prosperity. And there has not yet been anything that's come close in terms of allowing billions of people to use machines at low cost to improve their lives. So I think that, again, we can talk about the future. We can talk about A, are there replacements for fossil fuels in the future? And B, we can talk about, are there increasing climate risks in the future? But first we need to acknowledge the present and the past but particularly the present that we have the best life anyone has ever had and that fossil fuel energy is essential to it. And I don't see most of our leading thinkers acknowledging that at all. They act like the world is terrible and fossil fuels have only done bad. And, and I don't, anytime someone has that attitude, I don't trust their predictions about the future. Yeah, no. Yeah. I, I hear you. So I'm from Denmark actually, where we, we had, uh, we have Bjorn Lomborg, which I'm Wait, sure you've were you heard born of. in Denmark. Born and raised, yes. Completely. You have no accent. No, not a lot. No, no, it's there. It's ah. there. So and Lombard just came out, out with a. He has a book coming out. Actually, I just reviewed it on my podcast. It's really right. Cool. Yeah, yeah. They made him like minister of climate or something when I was, you know, a young oh, man really? in Denmark. Yeah, um, it was quite interesting. And I remember having those conversations with my friends. It was like in 1999 or something like that. And I was living in New York at the time. And, and it was like, I was like, this is, this makes sense, right? Like, lo let's look at climate cost benefit, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember my friends being like, no, 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 yes, it does. But we can't talk about that. Because if we don't scare people, they're not going to do anything, right? That was like, literally what my friends would say. And I'm like, I don't uh, think that's helpful, honestly. Well, I mean, it's helpful to scare people proportionally to the extent there's a demonstrable uh, risk. I mean, you can see right. the same thing with... I mean, this is another controversial issue, but if you think about COVID-19, I mean, everyone should agree there's an amount that people could be scared that's too little, mm -hmm. and there's an amount people could be scared that's too much. 
And we see yeah. that like if people are overly, like if they stop everything, right? I mean, you mm -hmm. see like when people stop everything, we have all these catastrophes, like people not getting medical procedures that they need and not leaving their house and like all these. So, I mean, just with any risk, there's no such thing as like an infinite risk or no risk. So part of the job of anyone thinking about this is to try to get a sense of what's the significant, what's the real significance of this risk? And then how does that compare to the benefits that come along? So right. with fossil fuels, I think of it a lot like I would think about taking an antibiotic. Like what are the benefits that I'm gonna get from this that I won't get if I don't use it? But then mm -hmm. also what are the side effects? And, and I think sure. you need to think of both of those proportionally, like how right. significant, uh, are they? And I think that people with fossil fuels, they tend to very dramatically understate the benefits and overstate the side effects. Right. So, so like, let's talk about the CO2, right? Like, so obviously there's CO2 emissions. Like mm -hmm. for me, I'm like, whether or not we know that that leads to warmer climate or quote unquote mm -hmm. climate change is called now, it seems like releasing a bunch of CO2 into the atmosphere is an experiment on a like planetary scale. We don't we only really have one planet that we know of. Right. So, so maybe be cautious about that. What, what is your take there? Yeah, that's an interesting, it feels a really common attitude. Certainly like Elon Musk who's a guy I admire in a lot of ways. This is certainly his view. Like he'll say, Oh, isn't it crazy that like, this is the craziest chemistry experiment ever. Like we're just putting this into the air and why are we doing this? And right. well, the reason why we're doing this, we have to understand first, what's the benefit of doing this? So, I mean, the mm -hmm. benefit of doing this, as I mentioned, is machine power for billions of people to go from extreme poverty to extreme productivity. Like, and that means a planet, if you think of it in terms of the planet, this is a planet where there are 8 billion people who have record life expectancy, record income in, with record population. So there's more of us and yet we are, you know, we live longer and we have far more um, opportunity. And I think that's all tied toward low cost energy. If you, if you couldn't produce low cost energy for billions of people, then we go back to nature and there's no way nature can support 8 billion people. Couldn't even support 500 million people at a high standard of living. Imagine like right. primitive agriculture working by hand, uh, you know, quote, pure organic. So, the thing is, we have to look at, okay, the benefit of this is a livable planet. Like for the people alive today, like the, so if we're concerned about what's it going to do to the planet, well, what it's doing positively to the planet is making it livable. Because without mm. extreme productivity, the planet is not uh, livable. So that's a big thing to be concerned about. So really, it's not an experiment to get rid of energy or to, to make energy inaccessible to most people. We know we, that's a certain catastrophe. And so then the question is, Yes, when we produce this form of energy, we have no way right now of avoiding CO2 added to the atmosphere. So for example, before we started using fossil fuels, the atmosphere is about 0.03% CO2. And now it's about 0.04%. And if we continue, it'll go to 0.05% and maybe 0.06%. And that's certainly something that we should investigate. But I think we should investigate. Investigate doesn't mean be panicked about unless you have evidence. And I thought it was interesting the way you raised it and the way other people raised it. There's this assumption that, oh, it, well, it has to be bad if we're changing, you know, the chemistry of the atmosphere. But mm -hmm. if like, you look at the history of the atmosphere on Earth, at least as far as we know, we're actually at a very low point in terms of CO2. CO2 has been 15 times higher for a lot of the planet's history. And also temperatures have been 25 degrees Fahrenheit warmer for a lot of the planet's uh, history. Mm -hmm. Now, we weren't, around, we weren't around for those periods, but those were the lushest periods of life. Um, 
and there's a lot of reasons to believe we could adapt to those, but we have no way of even getting close to those. We don't even know if we wanted to, how to put that much CO2 uh, in the atmosphere. So in a sense, it's, we, we can put- I like that way of saying it. <laughs> we wouldn't but, even be able to, like, we wouldn't even be able to put that much CO2 in the atmosphere. No, no, and that's, that's relevant because you, when you're looking at side effects, you have to look at what's the threshold of danger for right. something. And part of it is if we were literally at unprecedented levels of CO2 for the planet, like that would be a lot scarier than if we're actually at the low end of mm-hmm. the range of, of um, right. CO2 levels and temperature uh, in the planet. So my, my view is we should look at this, but we shouldn't assume that it's, that it's positive or negative. And if you just think like the, the people who discovered the greenhouse effect, one of the guys in particular, Arrhenius from Sweden, like his view was, he actually overestimated how warm it would get, but his view was overall life will be a lot better because generally human beings want warmth and the way global warming works is it works, it's closer to the poles versus the equator. So it makes the world more uniformly warm. It doesn't just make it super hot at the equator. It makes it warmer, you know, places like Siberia. Uh, certainly, you know, it's supposed to make it a lot warmer. And also it adds a lot of CO2 that can be plant food. So it's generally, right, right. you would expect but it to be a But what about then the, the, the oceans, right? That's the obvious right. but that, thing that, that that's that Yeah, it is an obvious thing. And so, but I'm, I'm trying to give a perspective of, and maybe I should say, I'm, I'm really giving a human focused perspective on this. So when we're looking at changes in the planet, we shouldn't assume, we shouldn't act like, oh, if humans cause them, they're good. Or if humans cause them, oh, yeah. bad. we should, we I should mean, look at them. That is really like how an good are they for thing. humans or not? Right. That's an underlying psychological phenomenon that, that I've been trying to grapple with. Right. It's like, it seems like there is like, when it comes to climate change and a number of other issues, you know, of these big political issues, there's this tendency to um, not like humans, right? Like feel, feel wrong or guilty for being a human, for being here. Yes. For, it's like even taking up space almost, right? Having any impact. Um, yes. Yeah. That's, like, that I think is the core to all of this. So just to connect it to everything we've been talking about, if you look at this, the people who say the planet is, like we've ruined the planet. I just saw, uh, you know, Joe Rogan yesterday was like very happily uh, putting something on Instagram. He had some person on his show about like talking, calling out industry deniers. And he just said very casually, oh yeah, this woman is talking about the industry deniers who are hiding that we're destroying our planet. I'm like, okay, we're destroying our planet. Well, destroy means to make something worse according to your values. Again, this planet supports 8 billion people at record life expectancy with record opportunity from a human. If you look at the planet from a human perspective, whatever is negative, it's the best planet ever. Like the planet 200 years ago right. didn't support us. But the key is I'm eva- my standard of evaluating the planet or anything else is how good is it for human beings? And so and right. I, I often use the term human flourishing, which means human beings right. living to their highest potential, like materially and, and mentally. And when we, when what we've been taught particularly when we're talking about our surroundings, our environment, is we, we look at it instead with an anti-impact standard. So the idea is human impact on the rest of nature is immoral. And that, that's really the view. And then there's this assumption that because it's immoral, it's inevitably going to destroy us. So people think it's wrong for us to impact the earth so much. And of course, it's going to destroy us. And yet we have, we have 200 years of people saying, yeah, it's going to, it's going to destroy us, it's going to destroy us. And yet life right. keeps getting better. And they're, they're, one of the premises behind this is that the planet is perfect and that we ruin it. 
versus from a human right. perspective, the planet is very imperfect and we need to transform it dramatically. Now, certain things- the planet, but Yeah, the planet as a, like in its raw state is a very hostile environment yeah. for humans to live in, right? Right, So, but think about if that's true and it is true, then how anti-human an idea is it that we should minimize our impact? Because if, right. if you have something, it's like saying we should minimize our impact on disease. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, my concern would be that we're not, we don't, yeah. My concern would be that we don't, like we don't fully understand the parameters. Like Dan Barber, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a, a chef from New York. And so he, he, he has a TED talk where he talks about like these fish and like this, this place in, you know, two fish farms, like one that is like feeding the fish, chicken, food, whatever, like, uh-huh. and, and, and like very industrialized kind of thing. And then the other that's in Spain, which where they have this entire ecosystem of all kinds of animals and plants and like natural rivers. And they've created this mm-hmm. amazing habitat for, for fish, right? Where, where a lot of the times we don't, there, there are parameters that we don't take into account that we don't measure when we look at how we're impacting nature, right? And, and, and that ends up biting us in the, in the, in the ass later. That would- Well, I mean, that is, I mean, this is true of anything where you have sort of incomplete knowledge of all the consequences that are going to, to happen from something. Uh, but I would, I would also caution that we know for sure what happens if we don't have low cost energy for billions oh, of Oh, for sure. Like that, that's, oh, but, yeah. that's, <laughs> but that's viewed as, but people take it for granted. Oh, well, they don't even think about the role of energy they only think right. about the negatives of it. But so if you're, if you're concerned about some of the negatives, I am sympathetic with that and we should look into that. Uh, but you need to be aware that the positives are literally your life. Like most of us wouldn't be alive with this. And certainly yeah. again, the, the poorest people in the world have no chance of, of lifting themselves out of poverty uh, without the ability to use the, this kind of energy. They absolutely need the lowest cost energy they can get. And then, but when you're talking about these side effects, you you really need to have evidence about what they are. You can't just say, oh, well, like we don't know, so you're not allowed to do um, anything. Mm-hmm. And in particular with things like CO2, we, we know again that it's not unprecedented for the planet. We also have 170 years already of increasing CO2 levels. And what we have with the kind of mediocre temperature records we have is you know, one degree Celsius, which is a little less than two degrees Fahrenheit of warming in 170 years. And if we look at how that's been for human life, not only has human life improved across the board, but the the death rate from climate-related causes, so storms, flood, extreme heat, extreme cold, that's down by about 98% over the last 100 years. That means you're 150th as likely today to die of a climate-related cause as you were 100 years ago. And the reason is is the same thing as, as everything else I've been talking about. Like nature is not naturally... A good place. So nature doesn't give us a safe climate that we make dangerous, gives us a dangerous climate that we make safe. And we make safe, we make it safe through extreme productivity. We can produce all of these climate protections that then make the naturally dangerous climate uh, safe. So we're not, there's, again, we have 170 years of using fossil fuels, increasing CO2 levels, life getting way, way better. I would say the dangerous experiment would be to stop that before you have a superior competitor. So what the, why why that drive like why that whole I mean if you read the New York Times right or like listen to Greta Thunberg or like we're about to die like in you know yeah just a few years why what is the emotional people get very emotional about it yeah what do you think is the drive why they get emotional about it why they think that it's why so they feel dire? That, 
and why they feel the need to like it's it's almost like yeah they are so emotional that they can't look at it rationally right they they have this agenda that they're pushing um yeah what's going on what is your take on it well, I think one, one data point that I talk about in chapter one of Moral Case for Fossil Fuels is that there's 50 years of, of these catastrophic predictions that have been made by some of the leading environmental thinkers. So we're often told, you know, listen to the scientists, which that's really code for listen to the thought leaders that the media select. It's not like we're <laughs> surveying all scientists ourselves, right? And what's interesting is that if you look at the, the thought leaders that the media, what I call more broadly the knowledge system, so all the different cultural and knowledge institutions, the people they select, they've got a 50 year track record of telling us that fossil fuels are gonna cause imminent doom. So you have people like mm -hmm. predicting the world's gonna end in 2000, the world's gonna be underwater by 2000, et cetera. And so there's a real question of why, why do they do this? And I think there are two reasons that are going on. And so one is what I call the, the perfect planet premise. So that's the assumption that nature is stable, safe and sufficient. So absent human beings impacting us, it's like a garden of Eden. Doesn't change too much. It's not gonna hurt us and it gives us all we need. And in reality, the truth is what I call the imperfect planet premise. Like nature is dynamic. So it's changing all the time in all kinds of ways. It's dangerous and it's deficient. It doesn't give us what we need at all. But if you believe in this perfect planet premise, what you fear above all is human impact. Because you think anything we do to disrupt the delicate balance of the perfect planet, that's gonna go haywire. And we are all, particularly my age uh, on down, we're all indoctrinated with this idea that oh, nature exists in a delicate balance. We think of it as this perfect godlike thing. And if we disrupt it, it's gonna get ruined. And so that's, that is a, that's a dogma. It's really a religious assumption, but it's deeply embedded in our thinking and even in modern environmental science. They just have this view that the planet uh, is perfect. And I think the other thing that's going on, which is related, so you can think of the perfect planet premise as the idea that human impact is inherent, is inevitably self-destructive. That's the way, that's the consequence of it. But there's also a moral view, which is just that human impact on nature is intrinsically immoral. And I think this is what you were getting at before, just that it's wrong. I, yeah, for, I remember having for us to make a footprint. Right. They, I used to kind of believe that like, oh, like, it, I had this when I was in high school conversation with my brother was like, yeah, this like nature pristine and like humans, we shouldn't like impact or touch. We should yeah. leave everything exactly what it was. And I, and he was like, well, like that's not human. That's not what humans have ever done. <laughs> it wouldn't work. Right. Like, but yeah, I can, I can relate yeah, I like to that. Your brother. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> I like his, his attitude, but, but we do have this view that impact is immoral. And you just think about, it's, it's lionized that, oh, somebody who makes very little impact is a very low footprint. Like that's considered that, honestly, a very good person. Right. Is that is that because we hate ourselves so much and we feel so guilty about just our like existence, well, like there's, the Christian original of, sin? And yeah, so well, it's whatever definitely impact we have secular, must be bad, right? Yeah, it's a secular, I mean, that's a really interesting historical question, but it's definitely like a secularized, and I even, I'd say much more anti-human form uh, mm -hmm. of original sin, because it's basically saying that, um, I mean, I, I'm not religious, but, you know, at least in the, you know, if you look at the Bible, and the Bible at least says, like, human beings should prioritize themselves uh, above others. Like, it, it views human beings as as good. I mean, in a sense, certainly good compared to the other animals, whereas the modern view is basically that everything human beings impact is bad, and everything mm -hmm. the rest of nature does is is natural 
uh, and good. So it, you know, we can talk about the causes, but this, this deep guilt and this, this belief that just our impact is bad, it's ever. And I'll just give you one example of how this manifests that occurred to me a couple of years ago that really, I've just th thought about it all the time ever since I came up with it. I thought, you know what? The New York Times, all these leading media institutions, they're constantly talking about um, like, you know, energy every day, like in one form or another energy. And yet how often do they talk about the fact that 3 billion people in the world have virtually no, use virtually no energy. Like, mm -hmm. and a lot of them are using wood and animal dung, which has terrible indoor pollution. But the main thing is they're not empowered. They don't have the machine power necessary for extreme productivity. Like I never hear about that. I mean, I never hear about that. And yet that's, if you realize, if you care about human life, that's a tragedy, right? That is a tragedy right. that's holding billions of people back. And yet how many stories do we see about disruptions to the patterns of polar bears? Like all the time. Mm -hmm. And a polar right. bear is my favorite animal, by mm -hmm. the way. Uh, so I love polar bears, but there's something really perverse about being so obsessed with these remote polar bears that nobody even ever sees or goes to see or really, but, and having no concern for 3 billion people not having energy. And the reason is because the standard that we're using to evaluate things is not really human life. It's unchanged nature or minimal right. impact or green. And, well, that, and it's just, also, our priorities it's, are so inverted. Yeah, you're, it's right. But it's also, I bet like these people, if, if it impacted their life, right? And now they had to go out and live in a tent and couldn't have heating or like, mm -hmm. you know, buildings or things like that or food in the supermarket, they might be upset about it. But if it impacts 3 billion people that they don't really see, then don't care about that so much, right? Yeah, but I mean, at least, at least it should be, you'd expect the leaders of the culture, the people who are supposed to be intelligent, who are supposed to be sharing with us, these are the most important issues, and this is the best expert knowledge, you would assume that they would care about, they certainly care about poverty, but look, their focus on poverty is, oh, climate change is going to affect uh, poor people. But, but it's all about, right. it's caring about poor people insofar as that's validation of your view that impact is mm -hmm. bad. It's part of this yeah. hell narrative that we're going to go to hell on earth because we use this, but there's not an actual, like, again, it's like, pull those people, religion, like, they right? don't care about it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's a very anti-human uh, religion, but part of the danger of it is it presents it's, I mean, it's, it's uniquely anti-human. That's part of it, but it's also, it has a uniquely false claim to science. So usually mm -hmm. like with most, um, like most religions don't get consulted on what's going to happen to the climate in the future and what we should do about it. But unfortunately, the many people or at least the, the leaders who are transmitting the science of climate and I think often distorting it, these are often people who believe very deeply that our impact is bad. For example, Michael Mann, one of the leading climate scientists in the world, like he'll post on Twitter that the world has eight times too many people. Like that's his view. Like there should be a right. billion people. Like, Volunteer, I mean, first of man. all, you go first. Yeah, that would help out <laughs> yeah. a lot. That'd help out a lot. But um, you just think about like people with that religious view, that anti-human religious view, and they're giving scientific recommendations. But the question is, A, if they have this false narrative that anything we impact is going to be destructive, if they have that, that's a dogma that's, that's prejudicing them. But also, if in the end, they don't value human life. So if their concern is with preserving the rest of nature, not improving human life, then they might think that, let's say, a two-degree warming 
since uh, the 1800s, which is what a lot of people are afraid of. Like, there's no way that's actually going to be a big problem for human life, but they might just think that's immoral. It's wrong for us to have changed it. So even if our life right. is way better, I mean, I mean even we shouldn't have John, done it. Right. Lomborg, that was the thing. It's like, well, yeah, but like it might not, you know, it might be look at it cost benefit and what, what is it? What are the actual consequences? But it's wrong to look at it that way. Right. But he, he's, because he's looking at it from a human perspective. I think that's one thing exactly. that's good about his approach in his new book, uh, which is coming out in July. It's called a false alarm, but I, I got a review copy and I thought it was overall mm. excellent. Like he's constantly viewing it as, okay, what is this actually going to do to human life? And he thinks, so he and I have different views. I mean, he thinks that overall, the negatives of the CO2 by itself, leaving aside the energy that we get with it, he thinks they're, they're going to be net negative. I think we really don't know uh, one way or another, but he mostly acknowledges that the positives we're going to get with fossil fuels overall, if we consider the CO2 and the energy billions of people are going to get, are way higher. And one thing he points out is, look, human beings are so uh, adaptable. And he'll, like, he'll point out people, you'll hear these claims about, oh, we're going to have all these climate refugees because everyone is underwater. And he points out, you know, there are already 110 million people in the world who live below sea level, like because right. of our adaptability right, right. now. And he'll, But what, one thing that's really interesting about his work and why I particularly recommend this a book of his and what he shows is how what the real scientists say gets totally distorted by what I would call the knowledge system, by the different transmission mechanisms. So he'll show a, uh, this claim that you'll hear from this guy, David Wallace Wells, The Uninhabitable Earth, about like 170 million refugees and all this money. And then he'll show the original study. And the original study will say, this will only be true under these assumptions about climate, but also if human beings don't adapt, but of course they will adapt and therefore this will be quite manageable. But right. the media leaves out, of course, they will adapt. So they they predict the future for a bunch of lemmings, not human beings. It, right, yeah, because they have an agenda, right? I mean, human beings are innovative and creative and adaptable and resilient. Like, that, yeah. it's always been that way, right? Well, so for, clearly, like, your your take on this is not the mainstream view, right? Like, um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a quote-unquote unpopular opinion, opinion uh, that goes against religious heresy at this moment. I would say it's more of an unknown opinion, but... Right. In what way? Like, what people haven't people, heard it, or...? Well, yeah, I don't think most people have heard this idea that fossil fuels are actually making the world a better place to live. Right. Yeah. So there's a monopoly well, so on the view that they're bad, and whenever you have a monopoly, you have no, I mean, you have no competition, and you right. have really weak, I mean, if you think about a market, like a government created monopoly, like really weak product can right. succeed for decades. And so really mm -hmm. weak arguments can succeed for decades if they've gotten a monopoly. But, you know, what starts to happen if people start to debate it? What I see is, you know, that David that Dave Rubin show was, was helpful, but I, I need to do more of this kind of thing. But mm -hmm. the more people see the views up against one another, they see, mm -hmm. oh, wow, it's no, this other side really isn't looking at fossil fuels the way we would look at antibiotics or vaccines. They're not really looking at the benefits and the side effects proportionally. They're not really measuring good and bad by human flourishing. And if we do that, right. we at least have a very different view than fossil fuels are terrible. We need to eliminate them. Got it. So what is, has, have you experienced like backlash? Like, you know, is it, has it been difficult for you to have an, an unpopular point of view or... I mean, I would, basically, I would say no, but part of it is, so I admit part of this is my own constitution, but I don't think that's, so, I mean, like, I just have a model in my head of, like, there's such thing as reality, 
and there's a such thing as what people say. And sometimes what people say maps to reality. And sometimes it doesn't. Often it doesn't. And I'm only concerned with what they say insofar as it maps to reality. So if, if somebody gives me a good argument about why I'm wrong, then that's interesting to me and, and it'll bother me. And sometimes people will prove me wrong about something and then that'll bother me and then I'll change my view uh, on something. But if somebody just says, oh, you're a climate change denier, which you know, not at all, that's not even a coherent term. Like, you know, if they just make something up or they just repeat what they've heard, it's the same as if they say like, you're an idiot for believing in evolution. Like, no, I believe in evolution because I'm not nearly as much knowledge about it as I do about energy, but like, I, I believe this about the scientific evidence. And if you want to ar give me an argument, then I'm open to that. But the fact that you believe in a dogma and you're just mouthing it to me, that has no significance. And I think that right. a lot of people it, it don't have that kind of like clear distinction between just reality and what other people say. And I think that helps a lot. But the other thing is, I get really positive feedback. I, I wish I actually got more negative feedback because if I got more negative feedback, then, I mean, that would mean I'm reaching more people. So part of reaching a lot of people is it's polarizing and you get negatives. But just for people who are considering these views, I would say one benefit of them is there are a lot, if you express them articulately and really with conviction, you just explain why you believe them and why it's so important. Uh, a lot of people will be really grateful to you, particularly in today's culture where there's so much fear of saying what you think. People, I mean, certainly right now in the culture, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Just nobody can say what they think about anything. And so somebody who actually just says what they think, it means so much to so many people and people will tell you about it. So I, I just feel like the world has been very nice to me uh, for having these views. And I look forward to, to influencing more people and that'll be more nice things and more mean things. But again, the mean things are only valuable insofar as they're true. And most of them right. are not making good arguments. So it doesn't really matter. And I hope people take that attitude to like, oh, what is Ant? Uh, you know, I'm trying to make up a fake name because I'm not, I don't have an antagonistic Ant, but it's like, oh, you know, uh, what is my Aunt uh, uh, Christine, Jewish family, so I don't have an Aunt Christine. Like, uh, what is my Aunt Christine? Like, is she right? Does she have evidence? Otherwise, right. life is too short to care about what people yeah. with dogma think. How did you get on, onto this stuff? Like, what was your journey with it? Um, so my background is philosophy. So that's my main sort of primary interest. And so philosophy, you can think about think of it as philosophy is really the study of the frameworks that guide our thinking and action. So a framework, like a, a framework of a building is the starting structure of a building. And so the framework of your thinking is the starting structure of your thinking. What are the values and assumptions and methods that guide your thinking? So something like I talked about looking at the benefits and the side effects. I think of that as looking at the full context. That's a method that you know I have from philosophy that then I apply or values. like. I place top value on human flourishing versus unchanged nature. That's an issue of philosophy or assumptions. Like I view the planet as imperfect, not perfect. And my belief is that those core elements of our framework, they shape everything about how we think about things, how we talk about things, how we succeed. And I had, so that was my interest in my background. And then in 2007, I had no interest in energy. And I, I, I mean, I wasn't a what I would call a climate catastrophist, but I was definitely afraid of what we were doing uh, climate-wise. And I had no real positive 
uh, association with energy. I certainly didn't know anyone in the fossil fuel industry, which people sometimes think is true. Um, but I started, I, I was exposed to the history of energy and that really made clear to me this point that, oh my gosh, like before people had low cost energy, there was just extreme poverty everywhere, except if you had like the political power to basically command or put others in servitude, because then instead of having machines do your work for you, you'd have other humans, but that's not ethical. And it obviously doesn't scale to a lot of people. And so we just did this amazing thing where we figured out how to produce energy at low cost and that allowed everyone to use machines and become productive. And I really then became interested in how are, are we thinking logically about energy today? Because I thought of it as everything we do to increase the cost of energy is going to increase the cost of everything and make life worse. And everything we can do to reduce the cost of energy makes everything lower cost and makes life better. And I just, that with that context, I started looking at it and I thought, oh my gosh, people are not looking at all at the benefits of fossil fuel energy and nuclear energy. They're only looking at side effects. And then with solar and wind, they're only looking for benefits and they're not looking at side effects. And so I just yeah. became really interested in what's the truth. And then that became a very long research project. Got it. Yeah. The, it's, um, yeah. I mean, Denmark, you know, the, the, the most recent election, I'm, I'm, I haven't lived there for 10 years, so I'm, I'm not really paying much attention, but it's like all Is about Is it really climate, only right? 10 years? The, I don't understand yeah. your accent. I don't understand why you don't have an accent. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, that's I'll more interesting than this. For, for, from, from when I was a kid, so I'm 46. From when I was mm. a kid, I was more than 74. Um, I was always oriented towards America. I was fascinated with America. I learned to program before the PC was invented. My dad would bring home computers from America and books, programming books. And I would like somehow manage to pick up English on my own via programming before I was taught in school. Mm. Uh, not like conversationally, right? But it just kind of got into my brain. And then I had a teacher in eighth grade, that an English teacher that allowed us to choose whether we wanted to be graded based on US or British English pronunciation and spelling. And, uh, um, there you and go. I was like, there's two people in my class that were, were you know, went with US. And for me, there's no question. And yeah, so it was always awesome. been oriented towards America. Yeah. I, have you know a this map of America in the background? I was wondering like, about that. Yeah, I love this country so much, and and you know want to do everything. I actually have in in uh, thirteen, I was living in India for a year because I was having trouble getting a visa to the U.S. Like so, I've been here multiple times. Right, the first time was in '99 for for like two and a half years, and then went back, and it was supposed to be just a quick stop, a couple of years in mm -hmm. Denmark. Ended up being more like ten years. Um, got divorced, remarried. Uh, my new wife and I ended up in India for a year. And while I was out there on my birthday in 13, I had this vision of, of like, she asked me a question, like, um, if you could do anything, what would you do? And what came out of my mouth was completely surprised me was, I want to be a special advisor to the president of the United States on conscious nation building. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> and then I like, I had tears in my eyes for like 20, 30 minutes, but there's this like, deep love for America and just helping America like get clarity on stuff, which is why I'm passionate about, you know, climate change is one of the new religions that I think is not helping us. Right. Um, or like the, that view and all kinds of other areas when it comes to how we organize ourselves as a society. Cool. That's good. That, you're, that makes sense that you chose U S English. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. Um, 
So like, what is your, what is your take on nuclear? Cause I remember again, as a kid in the eighties in Denmark, there were these like anti-nuclear, you know, demonstrations. And I was like, mm-hmm. I just remember thinking, I don't know that it's that bad. Like, you know, <laughs> seems like a pretty decent source of energy, but everybody decided that nuclear is terrible. It seemed right. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a real, it's interesting that it's, think about how it's categorized. It's like nuclear is terrible. So what is, I mean, nuclear, there are different kinds of nuclear, but the main type is called fission. So it involves splitting an atom in in certain ways. The the basic idea is that the nucleus of an atom contains just this unimaginable amount of energy. And Mm -hmm. so if you can figure out a way to release it, then you can generate huge amounts of energy. If you, you do it, if you make it explode, which is what a bomb does, you know, obviously it can generate huge amounts of energy that's uh, intended to be destructive. Uh, But, you can also basically use it to generate amounts of heat that can't explode, but that can power, you know, what's called a turbine that, you know, turns around and essentially generates electricity uh, that way. And it's interesting that people act like the the view of anti-nuclear basically means no form of this should be explored or considered. Now that is, in my view, that is a crazy starting point for something. I mean, you could say maybe there's a type of nuclear reactors. If you take something like Chernobyl, like that's something right. that was, that, that the, the danger of that is totally overstated. I mean, by many orders of magnitude, but nevertheless, you could say, oh, this type of reactor is bad. Okay, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, and certainly that one, I mean, everything the Soviet Union made uh, was dangerous. One economist said like, you know, they, a Soviet toaster was a, you know, was a death trap. <laughs> I mean, it, so right. of course they were going to make the deadliest nuclear plant in history, but even the documented deaths is something like a hundred that they can really show. But mm-hmm. it, so it should be weird that there's this anti-nuclear versus anti-specific abuse of nuclear. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at the history of it, it has the best safety record by far of any form mm-hmm. of energy. I mean, there are no deaths from nuclear accidents mm-hmm. leaving aside Chernobyl. So any part of the free and civilized world, you know, look at Fukushima, you look at Three Mile Island, the supposed disasters, like there's economic damage there. And there's actually damage from evacuating people in too much haste, which can kill elderly people mm. uh, in particular. But in terms of nobody died from the radiation. Right. It those. seems to me so that- It's that, actually that... the safest form of energy it has a lot of benefits, but in terms of the side effects, it has, it's the least side effects of any form of energy. Right. And it seems to me like when we, when we got so scared of it back in the, I don't know when it was, it was in America, but like in Denmark, it was like the mid eighties or something. Right. It mm-hmm. was like, we stopped innovating at, at the same pace. Imagine if we kept innovating in nuclear. We reverse innovated because we made it more expensive. You look at the costs, I mean, the, the raw materials of nuclear have not become more expensive and human beings haven't become dumber. Yet it costs mm-hmm. several times more today to produce nuclear energy than it did in the past, even adjusted for inflation. And so the right. reason is, is because it's demonized as unsafe, then it in effect becomes criminalized through so many restrictions on how quickly you can develop and how mm-hmm. many layers of safe, so-called safety you need. And if you do enough of that, I mean, if you need to, any project becomes prohibitive if you have, if you pour enough resources and enough people into safety, it's just like if you, you know, right. if I had five bodyguards, if they said, Alex, like you're in danger, you're need five, I could not live. I don't have the money to afford five bodyguards uh, all right. the time. And so in effect right. there, then it's, it's completely excessive. And so for nuclear, it's actually the safest form of energy and yet it's criminalized as if it's the most dangerous. So I think in terms right. of 
if you look at I mean, one perspective is one thing that makes fossil fuels really good is they have these three natural advantages over most other sources of energy. So they're naturally stored energy. So like if you think about the sun and the wind, they're not stored. They're these intermittent flows that aren't working most of the time. So then you have to figure out a way to somehow store them so that you can get mm. them reliably. They, they sort of start hard. out reliable, right. whereas fossil fuels are naturally and they're naturally stored. Um, they're naturally concentrated. So they have a lot of, like oil in particular, stores a lot of energy in a small space, which is particularly good for transportation. It also means mm -hmm. you need less resources to make use of it because you're starting with something small versus solar and wind take a lot of space to do. So you need a lot of solar panels and infrastructure. And then they're naturally abundant. Now, solar and wind are naturally abundant, but they're not naturally stored and they're not naturally concentrated. Interesting about nuclear is it's naturally stored it's naturally way more concentrated than fossil fuels and it's way more abundant than fossil fuels. So in terms of the raw potential of, and we know how to harness it with fewer side effects than anything, including fossil fuels. So in terms right. of the raw potential of it, it's the most exciting thing. But unfortunately it arose in the, in the era of what I would call the anti-impact movement, which is often called mm -hmm. the environmentalist movement but I, I, don't, I think of them as anti-impact movement. Right. And so there's just this view of, oh, it's changing nature. It's playing God. Right. We shouldn't be splitting the atom. We shouldn't be creating this waste. And so it was so demonized and criminalized that it has never gotten the chance to innovate and compete. So we really have, to your point, we have no idea what its potential could be, but it's already way better than solar and wind. If you look at the full cost right. of solar and wind, because solar and wind, you not only need to pay for the solar panels and wind turbines, you need to pay for all the reliable energy that gives it life support all the time because mm -hmm. it can't exist on its own. It's, it's a parasite. Whereas nuclear, at least for electricity, can basically exist on its own. Right, right. Um, and so, so let me, I know, I want to respect your time. Good. I know we have to, we're running up on the hour. I want to run, so I've been thinking about this from a psychological perspective, right? Like, okay. it seemed to me that the, the, what happened back in the 80s when we stopped doing nuclear was based on an, an irrational fear, right? Fear ran away with us and we were like, too dangerous, like it can melt down, whatever, like, Fear and guilt, so sucked. Yeah. Right, yes. And then fast forward today, if we hadn't had that, basically there would be like, you know, the whole like CO2 thing would be solved, right? Like just go full on nuclear and like it wouldn't really be a thing. But what we're seeing today is the same exact irrational fear and guilt causing us to do stupid things again as a society, right? Right, and still the opposition uh, to nuclear. I mean, one, one, I think, really powerful point that shows there's something really off with today's environmental movement, which I call the anti-impact movement, is that they claim that priority number one for our future is lowering CO2 emissions, mm -hmm. and yet they oppose nuclear energy, right. which is by far the most promising way of lowering our CO2 emissions. They're also opposed generally to large-scale hydro which is the second most promising. Hydro is actually a little bigger than nuclear globally, mm. but it only works where you have the right type of body of water and the right type of topography. Whereas nuclear, you can theoretically, we don't, can't use it that well for transportation yet, but you can certainly use it for electricity, for a lot of different kinds of heating applications. And yet today, the modern environmental movement is against it. And, and despite, again, the fact that it's got the most benefits of the non-carbon forms of energy, has the fewest side effects of any form of energy. And so it has to be this kind of religious thing that it's just wrong for us to be splitting the atom. It's tampering with nature. It's unnatural. It's inevitably going to cause some consequence that we need to be afraid of. And we just shouldn't be doing it. 
Like we should mm. just live a more natural life, live off the sun, live off the wind. Never mind that that involves all sorts of mining. It's this ideal of we need to be renewable, we need to be natural. So I think that so yeah. much of the anti-fossil fuel movement is philosophical, which is part of the reason as a philosopher I became interested in it because I, mm. I think it's not it's not that a bunch of scientists have figured out that fossil fuels uh, are bad. It's more like a bunch of people with an anti-human, anti-impact philosophy are totally distorting the science. They're taking a grain of truth, which is that fossil fuels have some warming influence on climate, which I believe, but they're turning that into fossil fuels are rendering the world uninhabitable, which that ignores right. all the benefits of fossil fuels. It ignores that the, the side effects are much more mild than we think. And it ignores that part of the benefit of fossil fuels is that we can be incredibly adaptable to anything mm -hmm. that can plausibly happen. Right, yes, exactly. And adaptive, innovative, we have time, we have resources to create. Yeah, that's, so um, thank you for, for doing this work, Alex. I really appreciate you uh, putting yourself out there with this and having writ written the book and shared this with us. That's, I think that's super powerful. Um, uh, I have yeah, two questions. Pleasure. I have two questions. Yeah, can I just with. tell people where yeah. they can get more info if anyone well, is Well, that interested? was my first. That was my oh, first okay. question. Like, where do, like where, where do I send people? Where, like, obviously get the book. It's really, really worth reading. Yeah, the easiest place is if you just go to the website industrialprogress.com. That's Center for Industrial Progress. That's my website, industrialprogress.com. I'd say just if, if you're interested in these ideas, sign up. We have a free weekly newsletter, and that includes also a free course on energy. And that's the best way to learn about everything. And then I'm also on all the different kinds of social media. So you can find me there. I'm Alex Epstein. The second question is like, what is it like one thought that you want to leave people with? Um. I would say that, you know, fossil fuels have made the world an unnaturally good place to live. And fossil fuels can uh, make the world an even more unnaturally good place to live in the future. All right. Let that stand. Thank you so much, Alex. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Your time, yeah. Thank you for listening to the podcast episode. After 20 years as a serial entrepreneur, it's my passion to bring you ideas and insights from some of the best entrepreneurs, leaders, and thinkers in the world straight to your phone. We're going to be launching many, many more podcast episodes in the future, so please subscribe and leave a five-star review if you found any value at all from today's conversation. Your reviews and feedback mean the world to me.